At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Wednesday, October 8th, 2023 edition of Invest Talk. And we have a special guest with us today. Luke Guerrero is back. Thanks for being with us, Luke. Thanks for having me, Justin, again, for calling me special. There you go. Well, you are special. We're all special. Everyone's special in their own way. And uh, I'm Justin Klein. And I'm here to make this a special show. And every day should be a, a blessing, an opportunity uh, for us to go over the actionable material that is important for you and give you data and perspective with over developed with over 20 plus years of investment experience. And we're going to talk about the market performance. We're going to run down some show topics. But right after, we answer our first caller question now. Hey, Steve and Justin. Uh, I was looking to get some gold exposure. I wanted to see if you guys could touch on a company you guys talked about in a previous ep- episode. It's called Agnico Eagle Mines Limited, tickers AEM. Uh, I was just looking to see if this is something that I should uh, be looking at or keep on my watch list. Uh, looking forward to your answer on the show. And thanks, as always. All right, this is Agnico Eagle, and we actually own this for our clients. So obviously, we like it. Uh, probably one of our favorite uh, gold miners out there. They bought Kirkland Lake a couple years back, uh, and that's certainly boosted their overall performance from a, a cash flow and earnings perspective. Definitely one of the, the best in the industry, 3.2% dividend yield. And now, growth is slow as of late, but that's mainly because prices of uh, the the yellow metal have declined recently, but you're starting to get a resurgence. And right now you have a relative strength right at about 57. And so that is, you know, right now better than the, the overall market. So uh, you've had a reversal in gold miners in general over the past couple of weeks on the back of what's happening in the Middle East on a dollar that's uh, kind of stalled out. And what's surprising here is that even though rates continue to go up, uh, gold continues to remain strong today. For example, uh, gold is up uh, over 2%. So, you know, this is a sector that's getting a nice resurgence and Agnico Eagle is near the top of our list of the miners that are out there. Now, uh, we have about an hour, sorry, we have about 45 minutes left in in the show. And uh, our main focus point looks in the story behind this headline, manufacturing trends, 2023 sector rebounds after construction increase. So we're going to look at the a, a made in USA revival and how that has sparked a boom in the Commerce Department's report on construction activity. And as we get into it, we'll talk about the U.S. manufacturing construction costs in 2023 and how economic news can impact this sector. 
So we have some caller questions as well we're going to get to. One is on investment strategy and Costco. We're also going to talk about a few other things. One is the consumer spend trends. And you had the report, the retail sales report today. So we're going to look over that and what that says about the U.S. consumer. Also, a proposal by the Federal Reserve on lowering debit card swipe fees. Debit card swipe fees. So we're going to look at that. And then lastly, the... CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, they have ignited a renaissance of a sort in the manufacturing space. But the big question is it's in the direction that is most efficient because what's going to be very important in this world of fiscal dominance is how effectively government can allocate capital overall. So we're going to look at that and uh, hopefully gets to as many of your caller questions as well. Now let's talk about the market performance today. We had a strong down day overall. You had large caps down about 1.44%, small caps down two and a quarter percent, and some pretty big losers on the breakout in yields. The Tesla is down 4.78%. Uh, you had American Airlines down 4.8%, Lucid down 9.4%, and Neo down 7.3%, Rivian down 9.1%. So the EV sector really taking on the chin. And after hours, we should, uh, you, you saw Tesla uh, come out with poor earnings as well. So uh, it's pretty interesting to uh, see this large down day. The best sector, large cap value, only down 0.7% on the day. So that was the market overall. And uh, we continue to see a choppy uh, market in the midst of higher interest rates. You know, we, we, we're going to talk a bit about the consumer spending report, but obviously that was better than expected. That uh, accelerated the yields to the upside. So uh, that's something that is, uh, is on watch for the entire market. Because it's very important to see where the cost of capital goes. Are you going to get some uh, strength back in those sectors that have been weak, those bond proxies? Or are you going to see continued sell-off in those names as well as names with a lot of debt on the balance sheet? So a uh, pretty rough day after a strong day yesterday and remain, remain in a choppy market until we get some clarity on future Fed policy. All right, moving into a break. So give us a call at 888-99-CHART. Get ready for the next Invest Talk Wealth Webinar. Profit amidst chaos. Strategic investing in a recession. The Wealth Webinar will be presented online and free of charge, but you have to register in advance to reserve your spot. Which sectors tend to soar and which plummet during economic downturns? With the right strategies, you can safeguard your investments and also seize unique opportunities. So join Invest Talk hosts Justin Klein and Luke Guerrero of KPP Financial as they take you through the maze of mysteries involved with investing in times of recession. Tell your friends about the next Invest Talk Wealth Webinar. It's happening live, online, and free Thursday, November 9th from 1 to 2 p.m. Pacific Time. Go to investtalk.com and register now. 
Every Invest Talk podcast is made better by your questions. So don't forget to call. And if you've never called, Justin and Steve are waiting now for your finance and investment questions. Invest Talk, 888 99Chart. Well, hello. Good morning. This is Austin from Texas. So I am calling with a question for either Steve or Justin. Thank you guys so much for everything you do. Been listening for a couple of years now, but I uh, this is the first time I've ever called in, and I was looking for the right question. But I think I'm going to start with uh, one regarding reverse split. So let's say you own 100 shares of a company, and that that company does a one to ten reverse split. What would that mean for the shareholder of that asset? Thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to listening to your feedback on this question. Thank you. Well, almost always reverse splits are a bad sign. Now, it doesn't change the overall value that the company is trading at because the stock price will go up. Say you own 100 shares, the stock price will go up 10 times, and the number of shares you own goes down by 10 times. So instead of owning 100 shares, you'll own 10 shares. So overall, net-net, the value does not change. But typically, that only happens in companies that are down their luck they are trading in the single digits. They don't want to get delisted often. And they're just trying to make it look like the company is in stronger, a stronger position than it actually is. Because most companies that are trading at one, two, three dollars per share are on tough in tough times. Uh, so for you, the shareholder, it doesn't mean anything in the short, short term, but the signal to real investors is that this company is in, in a bad way. Would you add anything, yeah, Luke? No, that's exactly right. So typically when a company does a reverse split, it's because they're in danger of being delisted from whatever stock exchange they're trading on because all of these exchanges have listing requirements, one of which is a minimum price. So typically something will be delisted if it goes underneath $2 for too long. So they would reverse split to bump that price up. So no, that's exactly correct, Justin. Reverse splits. I know they sound sexy. They sound exciting. Uh, and even regular splits. Sound sexy and sound exciting, but uh, typically they uh, it doesn't change anything about the underlying value of the business. All right, now our focus point today looks in the story behind this headline: Manufacturing Trends 2023 Sector Rebounds After Construction Increases. And you had a lot of economic data as of late, and the main one was in regards to the ISM reports in the manufacturing sector. And that definitely beat expectations. It came out at 49, the highest reading since November of 2022. That was at 47.6 in August. And the 11th straight month that the PMI was below the 50 reading, which indicates some level of contraction. So manufacturing sector still in contractionary territory. But when you move over to the construction spending report in August, it was much better than expected. A lot of it was building in housing as well as factories, multifamily mainly. And uh, economists, in on at least on the ISM side, expected 47.7, so that beat. Uh, and so, Luke, it, it's, it clearly shows that while there are some issues in the manufacturing sector, it's off the map, meaning the trends are back towards growth even if overall the sector is not is not growing. Does that make sense? 
No, that makes perfect sense. I think with in a similar fashion to a lot of the economic data that was released that really in a way signaled or rather gave credence to the thought that we are still in a soft or mild landing uh, territory and that a recession would be mild if it happened at all. This signal to the market that, that the growth that wasn't really expected towards the end of this year may be more apparent than people thought it would be. Yeah. And that was this is the weak part of the the economy, the manufacturing side. And it has been for a while because everyone over over consumed physical products because they couldn't go out and do things during the pandemic. And now that's kind of reversed. Everyone has a, a lot of the things that they, they need because that's what they, they spent on. Now, five manufacturing industries in the ISM survey uh, showed growth. 11 of them showed contraction. So the growth were in areas like textile mills and primary metals. And then you had shrinkage in computer electronic products, machinery, electrical equipment, appliances, and components. And the leather, apparel, leather, and allied products makers describe the market as soft. So in the apparel market, it's definitely a tough market. Primary metal producers, says business conditions and market demands remain strong, however, and they projected to be at full capacity in the next 12 months. So uh, that basic material sector certainly holding on uh, very well. New orders definitely improved. And uh, while manufacturing accounts for 11% of the overall economy, you are getting an acceleration in those new orders. And long-lasting manufactured goods increased 4.2% year-over-year in August. And uh, this just shows there's a lot of spending on equipment business equipment that is helping uh, fill these factories that continue to be built at a fast pace. And Luke, I know, I know that the order backlog has uh, shrank for the, these manufacturers, but inventories also remained very low. So I think future production is likely to continue to build towards growth as we head into uh, 2024. And that likely means, like you said, a, a soft landing of some sort. Now, I think the big question is, what does a soft landing really mean? Is that just a, a, a mild recession? Is that uh, a flattish economy? What do you think a soft landing means? Yeah, you know, it means, in my opinion, you don't, you don't have the type of systematic credit stress that you have seen in, in more recent recessions. But the thing that I really pulled out of this, which is an important thing to note, is that the, the prices paid by manufacturers fell pretty sharply to 43.8 from 48.4 in August, which bodes really well for a disinflation narrative on the producer side. Yeah, and the Fed kind of laying off the gas. Now, construction spending overall. I was up 7.4% year over year. It just shows you how strong the demand for private construction of manufacturing facilities really is in the economy. All right, now we're going to do a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your questions on the Investock Voice Bank. If you're listening via the live stream or on AM 1220 radio in the Silicon Valley area, you can call now at 888-99-CHART. capital during the chaos of a recession. Tell your friends about the next Invest Talk Wealth Webinar. Profit amidst chaos, strategic investing in a recession. It's happening live, online and free Thursday, November 9th. Go to investtalk.com and register now. 
Right, let's go talk to Bill. He is in Walnut Creek. He wants to talk about Google. You own it or looking to buy it? Uh, Justin, thanks for taking my call. Looking to buy it. And I uh, want to get your take on what you think would be a good entry point. Well, it's had a very nice rally this year. And it has been a strong relative performer over this market pullback. You know, it's up decidedly since mid-August from about 125 all the way to 137 while the market has pulled back. So, you know, from a relative strength perspective, I like that. Now, talking about Google more broadly, there's obviously a very strong few franchises. There's Search Franchise as well as YouTube and their their cloud offerings uh, in general. So very solid businesses. Uh, There are certainly risks, obviously the rise of AI and ChatGPT. So I think that is a question of whether or not, you know, that uh, th- those those risks as well as the risk from regu- regulators kind of breaking up their dominance in search uh, is, is worth it uh, at these kind of, I think, elevated multiples that it now trades at. You know, it trades at its recent high uh, from the peak in 2021 and... You know, do you want to overpay at this point for a business that has a lot of potential headwinds uh, that could really break those franchises? Now, I still think the odds are low uh, that they'll break those franchises, but you have to recognize them. Luke, what do you think? Do you think Google is still a good value at these levels after this big run? I think Google is a unique situation amongst tech companies in that it's uh, allocation to how much cash it has. And the benefit of that in a high interest rate environment is something that kind of protects it from where some of those growth businesses would falter. But I do agree with you that there are some potential risks on the horizon, mostly being that so much of their revenue comes from advertising. And mm-hmm. if there is a economic downturn, those advertising dollars would go down. I don't think they necessarily have the same kind of regulatory breakup risks as other companies. But certainly mm-hmm. after this run-up, it's a good sign that their relative strength has improved. But I wouldn't try and catch anything when it's on the rise. I'd wait for it to level off a little bit and figure out where it is. It seems to me to be in the price discovery phase. Yeah. Uh, if the next support level, uh, it is into major resistance right here around the 140 143 level. As I said, now it's at uh, 138 at the close today. And uh, on a pullback into kind of the 120 level, that's an area that I think I might pick it up. 120, yeah, around the 120. Uh, so that would make it sufficiently undervalued for me and into support, but it's overbought right now and into major resistance. All right. Thank you for the call. Now let's talk about the consumer. And you just had the retail sales report yesterday. And it showed that spending at stores, online, and at restaurants rose stronger than expected to 0.7% in the month of September from a month earlier. And this is obviously going to put pressure on the Fed to continue to raise interest rates. Now, it's pretty clear they're not going to do that in the upcoming meeting on November 1st. However, it still leaves room for a hike in December or January. But what's interesting is that a Richmond Fed president, Tom Barker, yesterday said that September hiring and spending increases are at odds with anecdotal evidence from business executives and corporate earnings that point to cooling demand. So Luke, is this the first sign that the Fed is starting to uh, signal to the market that, yeah, despite the strong economic data, we're seeing some things behind the scenes that are giving us pause at raising again? 
Yeah, I think it continues in the line of the Fed kind of softening their language, right? So they mentioned that they earlier that the market is doing a lot of the heavy heavy lifting, which is going to allow them to potentially not raise rates down the line. But I also want to remember, you know, uh, point out that I would trust more the future hiring practices of companies rather than a historical retail sales number lagging mm-hmm. versus leading indicators. So mm-hmm. I think that eventually, at some point, given that the consumers' savings are being depleted, their spending power has to be diminished as well. But I think we should also concentrate primarily on where that spending is coming from. And a lot of that spending is coming from the kind of the upper tax brackets, the upper income levels spending on services, and you've seen good spending fall a little bit. Yeah, and uh, the Fed President Tom Barker also said that he's seeing lower income consumers and middle income, lower income consumers pulling back and middle income consumers trading down. So it's showing you that that pent up savings is starting to really wane and those consumers are pulling back in a big way. Despite the fact that uh, most economists see the GDP in the fourth, in the third quarter uh, being up about 4% on an annualized basis. That's pretty high. But uh, what you see, what you see is that uh, like you said, it's, it's more of the high end consumer and I think as long as the job market holds together relatively well, you'll continue to see that. But how much is the Fed going to balance uh, these strong numbers from the high end of the consumer versus uh, a broad uh, a broad slowdown uh, from the, the, the mid and lower end consumer? So I think that'll be uh, interesting. And uh, what's also what also will be interesting is the jobs numbers entering early next year. A lot of economists are saying that they see hiring slowing sharply early next year, and that would uh, potentially precipitate a mild recession. Now, the savings rate did tick down to 3.9% in August, down from a peak of 32% during the pandemic and over 5% earlier this year. Delinquencies are on the rise, and for the first time, credit card and auto loan balance uh, delinquencies are above 2019 levels. So it's showing you that it's not just a reversion to the mean anymore. You're starting to get actually uh, levels that are that are somewhat recessionary. Okay. All right. We're heading to a break. Ready for your questions right now at 888-99-CHART. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay. Why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture? I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in, patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value. So your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, 
InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com slash today. talk podcast is made better by your questions so don't forget to call and if you've never called justin and steve are waiting now for your finance and investment questions invest talk 888-99 chart hi steve and justin steve Ogier calling in from new hampshire i have a question on my general investment philosophy so i'm 28 i do dump about thirty five hundred dollars a month like a dollar cost averaging base into the growth side of the market. My mindset on that is that even though growth is currently out of favor, I will be invested there when style does shift and comes back into favor since my time horizon is roughly 30, 40 years. So I want to hear your mindset on that. I do know my limits and that I'm not as skilled to play um, the style changes, you know, you know, investing in value and then shifting back to growth and then economic uh, environment changes. So my mindset is that if I am invested here longer term, I will be able at some point to catch the plus side of growth at a pretty decent uh, cost basis if I do, you know, say, invest in this area for the next 10, 15 years. So I want to hear your ideas, uh, thoughts on that mindset and see if that is a decent way to invest for long term. So I'll listen for the answer on the So that was a question about maintaining a strategy and DCAing into growth for the long term. And first and foremost, I do like that you are DCAing into the market whenever you can. And I do like that you are invested for the long term. But For everyone thing, out there, DCA is dollar cost averaging. There we go, dollar cost averaging. But I will say that generally speaking in the long term, value actually tends to outperform growth. So Justin and I did a webinar on this sometime earlier in the year. And what we showed is that over the long term, even though on shorter term periods, growth can outperform value, investing in value securities over growth securities in the long term gives you a higher probability of outperformance and grows dollars at a higher rate in the long term. And outside of two periods, there are only two periods where growth outperformed for an extended period of time. And that was the 2010s as well as 1920. So outside of that value almost consistently outperformed. And mainly that's because there was, there was actually cost of capital in other periods of time, you know, in those periods, money was very, very cheap and therefore multiples expanded and you, you didn't, you, you discounted the future cash flows at a very, very low rate. And so, uh, you know, growth stocks can have much better upside individually, but as an aggregate whole, uh, the vast majority of them, uh, they 
they underperform because you're buying them at high multiples. They tend to never get to levels where their uh, the return on assets, return on equities uh, over uh, overtake their cost of capital, meaning their cost of debt and cost of equity, which tends to be somewhere in the 10% level. You know, So you want companies that are earning well in excess of that. And so uh, while many growth companies can get there, you know, the Googles and the Apples of the world today do, um, but they are the exception to the rule as opposed to the rule. A lot of people look at those names and think, oh, I want to be invested in the next one. Well, there's a thousand of them jockeying for that position. And guess what? There's only going to be one or two of those thousand that are actually going to reach that level. Um, so if you want to DCA into anything, I would say you want to be DCAing into the, the value side of the market. Um, and then when you think of where you're starting with valuations, valuations still remain relatively high in the growth side of the market. And I think of it like, um, what was it, Oracle? That was trading at huge, huge multiples uh, during the first, uh, sorry, no, Cisco. That's what it is, Cisco. During the first dot-com bubble, it hit a high of $81 per share split adjusted, and now it's at 53 And so if you buy into any company, even a good company like Cisco, at the wrong price, you can be you can be impaired for decades. And that's basically what's happened in uh, investors that bought uh, Cisco at those levels. So uh, I, I would, I like the DCA, like Luke said, but into the value, not growth. Unless you think we're going to zero percent rates again forever. Yeah, I think it comes down to what do you think the future state of the world is? And if you think the future yeah. state of the world is what the 2010s look like, which is free money, then sure, you should be moving into growth. But if you think it's what it was like going into the early 1900s, then maybe, you know, you should reevaluate your investment philosophy. There you go. Let's go to Bill in Northern California. He's looking at TXT, which would be Textronics, a blue chip industrial name, if I've ever heard of one. And they are, they make fixed wing uh, aircrafts, fuel systems for the defense and aerospace industry. Bill, are you looking to play the increasing geopolitical tensions um, here? Yeah, I, I called in about, I don't know why my sound level went down, but um, I'm calling in about uh, Pioneer Natural Resources. Ah, there we go. Different company, Pioneer. Uh, okay, do you own it or looking to buy it? Yeah, I, I own a uh, small position, basically, but uh, it's been going up, and I just, Kind of curious about you know the potential merger with Exxon and what the upper end of the price range might be for this stock in the near term, meaning the next you know um, one to six months. Yeah, so this is being bought out by Exxon, and I didn't see the details of it. I'm not remembering off the top of my head. Are they buying it with cash or stock or a mix? Shareholders are going to receive 2.32 shares of Exxon for each Pioneer share closing. Okay, so they're buying it with they're buying it with uh, with shares. So that effectively means that you now own Exxon. That's what this is. This is going to move with Exxon. It's a basically a derivative now of Exxon, unless you think that the deal will fall apart, which I don't think it will. Even though Pioneer is very large. Exxon is much, much larger. So it's likely going to be able to uh, handle this purchase. Uh, you know, it's a $60 billion market cap versus Exxon's 
452 million dollar billion dollar market cap so uh you know do you want to own exxon a diversified name in the energy space as opposed to a pure eap name you know uh pioneer was one of the pioneers in the shale industry and that's what you had exposure to and had much more upside potential to oil prices now it's going to be a steadier business and more diversified business question is which one do you want bill yeah i think we lost bill uh luke i mean what how would you think about this merger uh, that is one of the largest we've seen in this industry in history well you're exactly right in that when you evaluate names that are going to be bought it's essentially a decision between whether or not you think it's the deal is going to go through or not and if you think the deal is going to go through which should really be the only reason you long a company that has a price pop so when a company is being purchased and it has this price pop after the after the uh, announcement, it's because the market believes it's going to happen. And so when it approaches deal terms, it means the market thinks it's going to happen. So if you think it's going to happen and you're longing it, then your maximum price is essentially the ratio of shares you'd get in this case to Exxon. So your upper bound, to answer your question, is Exxon's upper bound right now. Now, if it doesn't go through, what you're going to see is a price drop-off. So that's typically what you should expect in cash mergers or in, in this case, share mergers is going to be whatever the deal term says, that's what your price is going to be if you believe that it's going through. Yeah, and, and how would, if you were him, would you want Exxon or would you sell this name for something that is more of a pure play EMP name like Pioneer is? I think there's a lot to consider. I think taxes are matter. How long has he been holding it? Is it a short-term mm-hmm. gain? Is it a long-term gain? Is it potentially a short-term or long-term loss if he bought it after this merger pop? But personally, I think Exxon is an excellent name to be exposed to. And if you want that exposure, then you should just hold on to it until you get those shares. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, it really depends on your exposure that you, that you, that you need. Uh, are you looking for the dividend and a steady play? On the in the energy space, or are you looking for the the most upside? Exxon's not going to give you the most upside, no, because it has downstream assets, and you know it's, it's in a lot of ways it's vertically integrated. Whereas if you buy a pure play exploration and production company, and oil prices go from around what are we around ninety dollars per barrel now mm-hmm. to one ten, the pure plays are going to go up much more because they have operating leverage, much higher operating leverage than Exxon. So. That's the question you have to ask yourself, and then you'll have your answer. All right, let's make it three in a row here on Invest Talk, 888 chart. Hello, Justin and Steve, longtime listener. Learned a great deal from your show. My question is today, I'm interested in purchasing an ETF, buying into it. it the symbol is V as in Victor, G as in good, T as in Tom. It is a Vanguard Informational Technology ETF. And I know that we discussed that these sectors have gotten beaten up quite a bit. Is this a good time to get in? It is or it isn't, but maybe you can give us a little guidance on that. Thank you very much, and I'll be listening for it on the podcast. All right, this is the Vanguard Information Technology ETF, and basically you'd be doubling down, actually quadrupling down on the exposure in technology uh, from the overall S&P. This is 100% in the technology space, 21% of this is Apple, 17% of it is Microsoft, then you have NVIDIA, Broadcom, Adobe, Cisco, Salesforce, Accenture, Oracle, and AMD as the top 10 holdings. 
So this would be clearly in the large cap growth space, which we said many times uh, is not the greatest place to be. Now, uh, to Luke's point before about Google is a lot of these names have a lot of cash in their balance sheet, which means they are uh, they are benefiting from higher interest rates because they're earning more income from uh, that cash. But you also have names like NVIDIA that are trading at egregious multiples. So uh, not my favorite way to uh, – uh, not my favorite sector to gain an exposure to, especially if you already have a lot of index funds. I'd be looking elsewhere with harder assets. Uh, but some of the names I like, you know, Apple, we obviously like Cisco. We like Oracle's a good name. So there's some good names here. But broader exposure, I wouldn't be looking for broader exposure just to the sector in general. Would you, Luke? I, I agree with you. This is It's a market cap weighted fund. So it's just going to look at U.S. tech companies and weight it based on market cap, which, like you said, mm-hmm. is going to give you exposure to those names that are also driving the S&P 500. So it depends on how the rest of your money is allocated. But mm-hmm. certainly... In this time, with the latent effects of interest rates not hitting, which would adversely affect tech companies more than other types of companies, it might not be the right time to get increased exposure to this sector. Yeah, especially after this run this year. It's been one of the best performers after last year being one of the worst performers. And to your point, a lot depends on the rest of your portfolio. If you have zero tech exposure then and you want to bring your tech exposure up to 5 8% of your overall portfolio, I think that's fine. Um, so it, it really depends. So I would encourage you to actually go over to a website uh, and schedule a portfolio review. And we can kind of look at all of your positions, understand what your risk is, whether you're taking uh, too much risk, not enough risk. What are your goals? Uh, what are your sector weightings? Uh, what is your What are your style factors? Are you leaning on the value side of the market or the growth side of the market? These are the things that we tend, we do on our portfolio reviews. And that's what's necessary here. When you're looking at a particular sector ETF, it's how much exposure do you have broadly to the various sectors and are you in balance? All right. Thanks for the call. Now let's talk a bit about swipe fees. And this is something that was part of the 2010 Dodd-Frank Act, and it was called the Durbin Amendment. Dick Durbin was a, a senator. Is uh, Didn't he pass away? Did he pass away? I'm not I think sure. so. I'm not sure. But anyway, what it, what it did, it allowed the Fed to put a cap on merchant swipe fees in the debit card world, and they did this back in 2011, soon after that was passed. And they set it at 21 cents plus 0.05% per transaction. But the Fed is allowed to lower this cap if it determines the cost of processing these debit cards uh, are declining. And recently it's said that it's declining. And so they've uh, announced a meeting uh, next week to vote on a proposal about revising this fee cap and lowering the cap overall. So this is going to hurt those banks that receive this uh, this fee and look it kind of adds insult to injury in a year where banking just hasn't been very good to to be in yeah you know this is an unfortunate year for banks it's an unfortunate year for regional banks it's an unfortunate year for all sorts of banks and that's because a lot of the value of the things they have on their book those safe assets that they're supposed to allocate to has gone down now on those are just paper losses right now right unless you have to you have a run on a bank like some of these regional banks had, you don't actually recognize those losses. But overall, this is just another area where you would expect bank margins to shrink. Yeah, and banks 
subject to the cap, received $16.6 billion in these fees last year. So that's a lot of money that can shore up the balance sheet, like you said, that uh, in many uh, instances is, is, is impaired in some way. And so another shot across the bow. Now, networks like Visa and MasterCard, they set interchange fees on things like uh, credit cards. And so they, they, there was a lot of power taken away from them when this was passed. So they, they, still, re, they still remain in power of the, uh, the credit cards. Um, but this is definitely going to change the way uh, some of the fintech partners, how much they get. Because they've been partnering with some of these banks in order to uh, get around this fee cap. Um, and because there, this is actually two tier, meaning this only applies to banks with over a certain threshold. I think it was, what was it? 10 billion in assets. Yeah. So a lot of smaller banks are not going to be subject to this, thankfully. And a lot of those smaller banks are the ones that are in trouble. But what this shows me more broadly is that the fed, which oversees the regulation within the financial industry is going to continue to, uh, to, to struggle to lower these, um, uh, to, to, to fight back on these fees, and it's going to hurt uh, the visas and MasterCards of the world. All right, we're heading into a break. So get your questions in now at 888 chart I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Hi, Steve, Justin, and Luke. It's Alex here from the UK. I was reading an article the other day and I wanted to get your opinion on it. It was talking about P ratios when comparing European stocks to US stocks. Um, it looks like historically European stocks always trade um, at a slightly lower PE ratio. However, more recently, that difference between US and EU stocks seems to have increased. Um, the article was saying that between US and European stocks, there's now uh, an increase of 13% um, discount on the European stocks. And if you compare that to UK stocks, where I am, um, that's now a 20% difference. Now, is this a reflection on just the economic circumstances of the, the two um, areas? Or would you see that as an opportunity to be looking at um, European or UK stocks? Thank you very much. And I look forward to hearing on the show. Well, first I'll say P ratios, I think, are a fairly poor indicator of value within a particular part of the market. Uh, but Luke, what do you think garners that difference? Is it geopolitical stability? Is it the stronger dollar? How would you, what would you put a, a thing, if you were to put a finger on it, what would that difference be created by? I guess it would be differences in economic outlook. So if you take a look at how the U.S. is doing in terms of even where it was projected to be from a growth perspective before the pandemic, uh, it's actually uh, outperforming pre-pandemic projections in terms mm -hmm. of economic growth. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right with uh, the difference in the growth rates of uh, each region. But also, what about balance sheets? You know, the, the ability to finance 
yourself is very important in today's world. And I, I would like to also see the leverage that these companies have compared to U.S. companies because that's going to become increasingly more important. Uh, and if you trade at a, if you if you have a stretched balance sheet, you're naturally going to have a P ratio that is more muted and uh, trading at multi- lower multiples because you're just simply higher risk. So that's the way I, I would characterize it as you're a higher risk business than the uh, American counterparts. And a lot of that too has to do with prof- profitability. You know, you think of our large cap tech companies while they trade at high multiples, but they probably should trade at a higher than average multiples because their businesses are so stable, so strong, and produce such high cash flow. Yeah, the short answer when you when you assess anything like this is that it's it's always a risk return story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the uh, I think the prof segments of the European the, the prof the high prof segment of the European market is certainly going to be much more muted than the high prof area of the domestic markets here in the U.S. All right, now let's pivot to the. Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. And we've talked many times in the show about how we're entering a period of fiscal dominance. And the big question that we're going to have to see is how productive will that fiscal dominance be? Meaning the governments, whether it's being run by the Democrats or the Republicans, it's pretty clear that they're both up for spending. It's just how are they going to spend and it will be in a productive manner. And I think it's pretty easy to argue here is that these recent this recent industrial policy which has been a big hit for for companies. You know, it, it certainly spurred them to build semiconductor plants, battery factories as was intended. But the problem is that it's mainly focused on the climate and doesn't really build on the strengths of the United States, which is cheap energy, for example, natural gas. And it, it, that's going to be the big question is how can politicians allocate these resources, these finite resources? We do have a finite resource of, of money uh, in order to bring the key advantages of America to the forefront. And to improve things like productivity, which has really been on decline and going in. And then on top of that, it's about having an advantage in high cost or high value manufacturing products. At the outset of globalization, the early 1990s, we had a surplus in that part of the trade market. Now we had our $200 billion deficit as of 2020. So uh, I'll be continuing to watch to see how the IRA Act and the CHIPS Act uh, actually manifest in real productive output, but that will be uh, a big trend going forward is will governments both here and abroad be able to direct investment into productive parts of the economy. All right. I'm Justin Klein along with Luke Guerrero. This is another Invest Talk program. Stephen, thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. 
Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.